If you're here, thank you for being here. Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to get here there in just a moment. As you do, I want to greet everyone watching online. Thank you guys for joining us today. We really love you, appreciate you. You're part of this family as anyone else, so thank you guys for being here. All right, so we just finished a sermon series called Cancel Culture, right? Pastor Thomas has really been encouraging us with this, and I would love it if you guys did not get to hear every message to go back, really unpack what he was teaching us, because it was awesome. One thing he said just a few weeks ago that really stuck out to me uh, was this. This is what he said. We need to be careful and understand the ways our culture has begun to influence us more than the kingdom inside of us. And kind of the theme verse that we talked about every Sunday was in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even realizing it. And I just, that, that, that whole phrase and this whole concept really hit me to my core because I desire to live differently than the rest of the world. I want people to be able to see me and realize that is a different guy. He, he loves his wife differently. He loves his kids differently. He, he gives differently. Like, what's with that? I want to be different, amen? As Christians, God's called us to be different. So I wanna start with a question today. Has anyone ever gone to a culture that you realize, you quickly realize you do not fit in there? Anyone before? Okay, lots of hands in this room, right? Maybe it's happened because you, you went abroad and you went to another country and you realize like, wow, I am not in Kansas anymore, right? Or maybe just even another part of the country. Well, I remember a number of years ago, my wife and I, was, uh, we were doing some premarital counseling with this couple. And by the way, as I tell this story, I did ask permission to use this story by the couple. Uh, and so I was like, hey, you know, we're, we're doing this premarital counseling. And, and at the end, they said, hey, we would love for you guys to come to our wedding. We just love it. And because I wasn't doing the wedding, I was just... Um, I wasn't officiating it. We were just doing the premarital counseling. And I was like, yeah, hey, we'd love to come. And they go, hey, why don't you bring your kids too? And I was like, okay, well, we got four kids, right? I think at the time we had three. I was like, are you sure you want them to come? And they're like, yeah, yeah, come. Our family has lots of kids. You'll fit right in. So I'm like, okay. So the Saturday came and we got all dressed up and we drive down to this church south of town and we get there and right when I pulled in, I remembered something really important about this couple. They had been coming to Rev City for a long time, but they were both, they both came back from strong German Baptist backgrounds, okay? And we have a lot of families that actually do here, but nothing wrong with German Baptist, that denomination. It's they're like, they love Jesus, they believe Jesus is the son of God, all that kind of stuff, right? They just express their love for Jesus a little bit differently than we do here at Rev City. So the first thing I noticed I walked in was the way we were dressed. And you ladies will probably get this, right? Because when you walk into a room, you go, am I appropriate? Am I wearing the right things? I see some ladies like shaking their head yes. So I was wearing a pair of jeans, a nice shirt and, and a blazer. If I was going to like a pastor's conference, I would have blended in with like a thousand other dudes, right? Like that's just like what we wear. And uh, my wife, who I just love so much, she's so beautiful. Uh, she does a really great job. One of the reasons I love her is I believe she dresses modestly and she's just gorgeous when she doesn't. She was wearing a dress down to her knees, which I think is modest. It was short sleeve. I know, scandalous. And... <laughs> 
It had like a little V-neck, didn't even show, just a little V-neck. But we walked in, I was the only guy wearing jeans. Most of the women were wearing dresses down to their ankles. Their dresses came up to their necks. Some of them were wearing bonnets. And like, I could just tell Adrian's walking around like, ah, oh my goodness, like I, 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 I feel out of place. We're like, it's okay, it's okay, we're good. So we kind of sat off to the side. We're waiting to go into the sanctuary, but we're already feeling like we haven't even said anything. I haven't said one word. I already feel a little awkward, right? And then all of a sudden, people really start coming in, and they're all greeting each other, and they start greeting each other with a holy kiss, because the Bible says to do that, right? And I was talking to Pastor Eddie, and I guess in Brownsville, this is a very big thing where they're from down in Texas, like, you just greet each other with a kiss, like, hey, Gary, good to see you, mwah. Okay, that's just a little different for me, right? That was purely innocent, and you know, they're doing it to each other, and all of a sudden, I put my arm around Adrian. I'm like, you're just gonna sit a little closer to me, right? We're not gonna go greet anyone right now because I'm not about to share my wife or anything like that. And so our kids are getting a little confused. We're covering their eyes and like, Daddy, Daddy, I wanna see. And you're like, no, 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 just, just, just stay behind me, right? So we're already just feeling like, oh man, we just don't fit in. And so the door's open, we get into the sanctuary. I'm like, we just gotta get in the sanctuary. So we get in there. And then uh, we sit down for a minute, and one good thing is I walk in, I see kids everywhere. Kids, I'm like, oh, sweet, because as a parent, I like to hang out with people who are parents because they understand kids just cry sometimes, right? They just throw fits, they whine, and other parents understand that. So we sit down, and about one minute after sitting, I felt like the teacher off of Madeline. I'm like, something is not right. I look around, and every kid is just sitting there like this. I mean, the service hasn't even started yet, and they're, and, and they're just sitting there perfect, like seven kids right next to us with two parents, and they're not making a peep, and I'm just like, oh no, this, this, is, not gonna, this is not gonna work. 30 seconds later, my kids are like, I'm bored. I don't wanna be here. You could hear a pin drop, and here comes the Barclays, you know? I'm just like, oh my, Lanta, please, please, just stop. I'm like, here, have the tablet. The tablet's dead. I'm like, oh, please, here, have some goldfish. They open the goldfish and they all go oh my goldfish are on the floor and I'm like please Lord rapture us right now take us to heaven please so I'm praying this prayer I look around I'm like well maybe that's a bad prayer because I'm surrounded by the holy people of Israel and we're the dirty Gentiles like I highly doubt we're really gonna make it uh, you know all kidding right just kidding we quickly realized we did not fit into that culture nothing wrong with it it wasn't bad they weren't doing anything wrong we, it was just something we weren't accustomed to. Paul says, don't be so well accustomed to your culture that you fit in without even realizing it. Because as Christians, there should be a major difference in how we live our life and the world lives theirs, right? God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. Sadly, many Christians just don't believe this anymore, or at least many people who call themselves Christians don't believe this anymore. We actually see this statistically played out year after year where the way the world lives their lives and the way we live ours becomes more and more similar to each other every single year. We see this played out in morals and character and our marriages and our families and our finances. And I desire, we should all desire to be different, that people could look at us and recognize he is being salt and light in a dark world. He is different than everybody else. So during that series, I begin to ask God, Lord, why do I always feel in opposition with the world? Like, I always feel like I'm swimming upstream and everyone's coming down. Everything I, I try to do, like, why do I always feel so different? And the Lord just spoke to me so clearly he, in a very firm but loving voice. He goes, Micah, 
The reason why you're always feeling in opposition with the world is because you come from a different standard. You come from a different standard. And I'll just give you a few examples of what I mean. You know, Pastor Thomas mentioned that in the UK, uh, kids under the age of 18 can get puberty blocking hormones without uh, parental consent now. In our school district, kindergartners are at being asked what their personal pronouns are. And even in our own school district, we have people who identify as furries. If you're not familiar with what a furry is, a furry is a person, biological human being who self-identifies as a cat, okay? So much to the point where they have asked permission to put a litter box in the bathrooms and they've, the school board actually did it. Okay, just a few examples. I, I just want to look at those. Just a few, just to name a few. How can people look at that? And there's a group of us that might say, that's progress, that's amazing, I can't believe our society has come this far. And hopefully there's another group of us that look at it and say, that's crazy, that's bonkers, that's, that's, that's detrimental to our society. The answer is because, because we come from a different standard. So the title of today's message is Raise the Standard. And I believe God wants to encourage us with, us with some powerful truths of why it's so important to have the standard, the word of God in our lives as Christians. So I'm gonna ask you guys a few questions here in a moment, but before we do, I'd love for you just to bow your head. Let's, let's turn our hearts to God and invite him here. Holy Spirit, we just love you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for speaking to us. We know your presence is here. And right now, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would fill us up, God. You would fill us up so we could actually love the culture around us. We could love and serve them in grace and in truth. God, not, not just condemnation, but really that, Lord, we could turn to your word for your truth and we need to even correction. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, it's funny, Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands firm forever. So I want to talk to you about standards this morning. Before we do, I have a couple questions, but I want to give you a definition of what a standard is because I want to make sure we're on the same page. Uh, you know, if you've ever gone into uh, an auto supply store like O'Reilly's or AutoZone and you go and say, I need some brake pads, right? If you go in there and you ask for something like that, you got to give them your make and model. And then they say something like this. Do you want the standard, premium, or platinum, right? And every time I ask that, I'm like, man, I have no idea. Just give me something that's going to keep me from falling off a cliff. I really, just I want my car to be able to brake, right? So I'm not talking about standard as in good, better, and best. What I'm talking about is a concept that we as Christians use to define things like right and wrong, good and evil. And it's very much tied to this, uh, the Hebrew word for sin, which literally means to miss the mark. The Hebrew word for sin literally means to miss the mark. It's talking about, it's an archery term. And I was talking to some guys earlier about archery because I, I shoot a bow and here's the idea is that when you go and you shoot, you're aiming at a target and what you're aiming at is a bullseye. And when I don't hit the bullseye, I'm missing the mark that I'm aiming for, right? I'm missing the standard of what a good shot would be. And that's what God describes as sin. He's saying, I have defined through the word of God what, how to live a life. This is it. If you miss this, you're missing the mark. You're in sin. You're missing the standard that I have for you. Uh, so I had to do a little research, and I found the New Testament word for standard is this word called canon. Canon is derived from the Hebrew word kane. Everyone say kane. 
I, I said Kane, not Kanye. Come on, Damien, get it right. Get it right. Kane, right? Kane, ah, I just love you. Uh, Kane means reed, okay? The reed, like a stick. And you're like, well, where is he going with this? So in biblical times, uh, reeds were a standard form of measurement. Because if you've ever noticed, they're like all roughly the same size. So they'd be like, hey, I need three reeds of this fabric or three, four reeds of some other type of valuable material, right? We might say it this way. I know Pastor Thomas can hit a golf ball 250 reeds farther than me. I golfed with him one time. I was just like, oh. Oh man, uh, I'm never gonna do that again. That's what we're talking about. A standard is something that we can all agree on. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, it's agreed upon. It's the idea of right and wrong, good and evil. It's our morality. It's all those things. So here's my first question I wanna ask you guys today. What is your standard? What is your standard? What do you turn to when you make those decisions? And we make decisions all the time. And I know as Christians, we say, oh yeah, it's the word of God. But when we really make those decisions. Is this a good job to take? Is this a bad person to get married to? Is, is, is this the best that God has for my life? Are we really turning to the word of God or are we turning to ourselves to make those type of decisions? And I just want to be bold and say this right up front, that the, you know, address the elephant in the room. But if we, do not, if we do not recognize the word of God in our life as the absolute truth of our life, we are headed for trouble. Absolutely. You, as Christians, we just have to know we have something called absolute truth in our life. And without it, we are headed for a world of hurt. I'm reminded uh, when I took this uh, class, it was years ago when I went to KU, all freshmen took philosophy 101. And in that class, uh, we were talking about absolutes and the teacher uh, split us up and there was like four of us who believed in, uh, believed in absolutes and the rest of the class didn't. I was like in the far minority and we went back and forth. It was really fun. And at the end, the teacher asked the, uh, this, the majority of the class who did not believe in absolutes to say, so you don't believe in absolutes? They're like, yeah, no, we can't. Even science, it's always changing. We just, we cannot be sure about anything. And he said, well, you absolutely sure? Okay, it's, it's a funny question, right? Because if they say, yes, we're absolutely sure, then that's an oxymoron. They're admitting that there's an absolute. And they, we all kind of laughed and they go, okay, no, we can't really know for sure there's uh, no absolutes. And in just that moment, when someone just admits that much, I just stood up and I was like, can I tell you then why I do believe in absolutes? And I shared the gospel. I shared why I believe in God and why having absolute truth in our life is so important. And, you know, I would love to say 100 people gave their life to Jesus and it was like this amazing moment. Most of the people said, cool, they left. One guy came up to me and he goes, I've never heard anyone say what you said. Could we please get coffee or lunch sometime? I said, sure. So we got together and, you know, I, I would love to say too that maybe he became a Christian. I don't know. But we had a great dialogue and it was all because I stood up for something that I believed in, which was this idea of absolute truth. This is what we know about God's word. Psalms 119 verse 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Proverbs 35 through six says, every word of God proves true. Come on, that's good news. He is a shield to all who come to him for protection. Do not add to his words or he may rebuke you as a liar. John 17, 17, Jesus says, the words of Jesus, make them holy, talking about you and me, make them holy by your truth. The word holy literally means stand apart, uh, uh, separate, to be separated, right? And what he's saying is, make them holy by your truth. 
talking about you and me, you and me, he's saying separate them. There's a difference between us and the world. Why? It's because we have truth. It says, teach them your word, which is truth. It's what separates us from the world. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. The letter of 2 Timothy, it was Paul's last letter that he wrote before he died. You kind of get this sense as he wrote it. He's saying things like, man, I fought the good fight. I ran the race. And he's telling his spiritual son, Timothy, this important thing. He's like, I'm about to die, Timothy. But if I can tell you something, it's this. We need all scripture is inspired by the word of God. All scripture is inspired by God. And that we need it to correct us and show us what is right and show us what is wrong in our lives. We have to have a standard. We have to have a standard to turn to. And if you go back just a few verses more, verses one through five, it says this. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, and who believes we're in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will only love themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiving, they will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Here's the kicker about this verse. Paul is not talking about the world here. You guys catch that? He's talking about people who call themselves Christians. He says, people will, I'm talking about people who will act religious. They'll come to church. They'll post a scripture on Instagram or Facebook or wherever, but they will reject the power that will make them godly. And what is that power? He's talking about the word of God. He's saying a standard that we can turn to and know all of us agree. It's something that we can all say without a shadow of a doubt. This is how we live our life. When we miss it, we're missing the best that God has for us. That's what a standard is. So let me ask you that simple question. What is your standard? What do you turn to? Ask yourself that question. What do you really turn to when you're making those decisions? I'm telling you, the standard that we are called to use by God is the Bible. It's meant to equip us, teach us what is right and show us when we're wrong. And I, know, I don't like being wrong. I'm married, but I know I'm wrong a lot probably, right? She, she points that out sometimes but it's good. It's good for me to know that. We have to have a standard. All right, here's, here's uh, the second question I wanna ask you. Does your standard measure up? Because again, I believe many people in this room might say, oh, I, I do have a standard and it's, it's the word of God, but we kind of treat it like a buffet, right? Like, ooh, I like this, I don't like that, I'll take this, that whole forgiveness, eh. But hey, grace and, grace and forgiveness for me, for sure, right? Does your standard, the thing that you turn to, does it really measure up? Even your own self-confidence, does it measure up to the word of God? And I was telling my wife earlier this week what I was preaching on, and I was sharing this part right here, and she goes, I really think this is supposed to be an encouraging message to the church, so I hope this encourages you, okay? But I wanna say something, and I want you guys to catch this, but I truly believe there is nothing, there is no other book in the entire world like the Bible, 
no other book in the entire world like the Bible. There is no other religion in the entire world like Christianity. Uh, we can go and look at other religions, right? We can study them, we can look at them, and we can read the writings of Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We can do all that. But none of those writings even come close, even come close to the Bible. And that may explain why. Um, scholars, actually, if you didn't know, they have all these tests that they put ancient texts through to figure out how reliable they are. And, there, and there's three that in particular. The first one is called a bibliography test. And what they do is they go and they actually look, how many original copies do we have of this ancient text? And it kind of gives us an idea of maybe how true it would be, right? Because the more texts we have, the more, like, okay, that probably is like a real thing then, right? Listen to this. So on average, a scholar is going to say, if we have anywhere between 10 to 20, that's like two thumbs up. We're saying that's really good. If we can get in between 10 to 20, we're saying that, that's strong reliability of that text. Uh, a, a crazy example is the Homer's Iliad. There's actually 643 original copies of that book. That's why it's taught so much. But that's a huge, huge, huge outlier, right? Let me ask you guys a question. How many original writings of Socrates do you think we have? I see one person like, oh, I have no idea, right? Zero. We have zero original writings of Socrates. All we have is what people said Socrates said. For Plato, we have 25. Not of one document, of just kind of everything he said. Everything else that we believe Plato said was things that people said he said. And Aristotle is the same thing. We have around 200. Not of one uh, uh, individual text, but of everything that he wrote about. We have roughly 200 copies, right? Would it surprise you if I told you for the New Testament alone, we have 25,000 original copies of the New Testament? Okay, when I say there's no other Bible in the, or there's no other book in the entire world like the Bible, that's what I mean. When scholars are looking between 10 to 20 and we have 25,000 original texts, I mean, they, even non-Christian scholars are just blown away. Not only that, the second part of that test is they go and they go, okay, so how long was the time of the events to actually win that first text that we can find when it was written, right? Because the closer it gets together, the more reliable it's going to be. So for Homer's Iliad, it was a thousand years difference before they wrote down that story. A thousand years. So that means Homer was writing something that happened a thousand years before he was even born. Do you think maybe some of the details could have been changed just a little bit after a thousand years? Does it shock you to know that those 25,000 copies that we have of the New Testament, they can be dated back within 25 years of the death of Jesus? This is why that's important. 25,000 copies, at least that we know of, who are being spread out the entire world. In the lifetime of people who would have actually known Jesus, they would have seen him on the news and been like, you know, I'm reading this. That's not what Jesus said. I was there. I was on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, come on. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what this, man, we all know his tomb's right over there. Look, he's saying he's alive. Like, well, we can go look at the bones. No. Why? Because they were like, yep, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly like, make a copy, send it off, right? We gotta tell people about this. That's how powerful, that's how powerful the word of God is. Nothing even comes close. So here's the bottom line for you and me. What we can know is what the Bible says, Jesus said, he really did say it. How the disciples turned the world upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit really did happen. Every miracle, every story, 
Every healing, every restoration, we know we can read and go, man, this really happened. Unlike any other book in the Bible, does your, does your standard measure up to that? Does your standard measure up to that? One more quick example here. The second test that they do is something called an internal evidence test. And what they do is they look at and say, look at the words like how true, you know, let's actually see what they said, how true is it? And it's funny because the Bible is actually roughly one third prophecy. Prophecy just means it's like a foreshadowing of the future or, or, or something to, you know, that's gonna happen in the future. The Bible is roughly one third. So a non-Christian scholar said, let's look, let's say, uh, at the life of Jesus. Now that we know there's, there's more evidence for a person named Jesus than any other person, like we have no problem believing in Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but we have more evidence about Jesus than any other person who, have ever, who has ever lived. So he goes, what's the chances that this person could have uh, actually fulfilled all the prophecies written about the Messiah 600 years before Jesus was born. So 600 years before Jesus was born, it was foretold that he would, uh, the Messiah would, would be born in Bethlehem, be born of a virgin, be born in the line of David, spend time in Egypt, then eventually move to Nazareth. 600 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies. And you might say, well, hey, look, Jesus could have been a fraud. He could have been trying to trick everyone and been like, yeah, my, my mom really was a virgin when she had me and I did spend some time in Egypt and I, then I went here and did this. Like, it, okay, it could, he could have. Unlikely, but he could have. What about these prophecies? The Bible also predicts hundreds of years before Jesus was born that he would be stripped naked beaten, that his body would be pierced, but his bone would not be broken. The Bible even predicts how much uh, his life would be worth at 30 pieces of silver. All those prophecies are things that are way outside of Jesus's control. Like he could have lied and said like, yeah, I'm, I, was, I did this, I did this. But do you think he was really standing on that, or hung on that tree and as the Roman centurion came to him and he's like, hey, I'm doing my best. Could you, I'm, I'm trying to say that I'm the Messiah. Could you not break my legs like these other two guys and pierce me in the side instead? And the, the Roman soldier's like, yeah, 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 for sure. I can do that, Jesus. No, that's ridiculous, right? All those things happen because the Bible predicted it. Even so, Judas goes to the Jewish Sanhedrin and he goes, how much will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? And they say, 30 pieces of silver. That actually fulfilled a prophecy written about the Messiah hundreds of years earlier. The people who reject the prophet fulfilled the prophecy about him. It's unbelievable. And so that same scholar said, okay, what are the chances, really, now I take all this into account, what is the, he was a mathematician, he goes, what are the real chances? And the number he came to was 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros, or one in 100 quadrillion chance that someone could fulfill all those prophecies written about Jesus, or the Messiah. But Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Listen, there might be 66 books, 40 writers, but there was only one author. And from the beginning of time, God knew what he wanted in that book. And when we read it, we can have supreme confidence that it can measure up against any truth, any, anything that the world tries to offer for us. We know the word of God can stand up against it. It is the truth. Amen? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come out and here's my last question for you guys this morning. Who is your standard? I asked you, what is your standard? And I said, okay, does your standard measure up? Now I'm gonna ask you, who 
is your standard. And this is what I mean by this. Who do you wanna become? Who do you strive your life to be like? Pastor Thomas usually encourages us around the beginning of the year that we'd be a lot better to set who goals than do goals, right? You, you, you can set a do goal, I wanna do this, I wanna do that, but we'd probably be a lot better to be like, who do I wanna become by the end of the year? Who do you wanna become? And I just wanna say as Christians, we should strive to live like one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus Christ. It's great to have people that you look to. I have uh, spiritual fathers, a physical father that I love, and I'm like, man, I wanna be a dad like that. I wanna be a husband like that. I wanna be a follower of Christ like that. But ultimately, I want my life to reflect the glory of Jesus. He is my standard. He is my hope. He is my future. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That is the standard that God has called us to. If you're familiar with the story, uh, Jesus is being brought before the, the Sanhedrin, uh, and then they take him to Pontius Pilate, right? And this is about right before he gets crucified. And he goes to the Pilate, and they have this very interesting dialogue. We can read about it in John chapter 18, verse 33, and this is what it says. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? <laughs> Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people, the leading priests, brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Or can I say it this way? The kingdom culture that I produce is not the same culture the world produces. If it were, my followers would keep to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. You say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. And then Pilate asks this age-old question, what is truth? I want you guys to catch this. 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire was the height of civilization. They had done things that no other uh, nation had ever done before, built amazing things, roads and cathedrals and all this kind of stuff. And Pilate is still asking the question, what is truth? Can I tell you something? The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. The world is still asking the same question today. What is truth? The world's truth is always changing. One day this is good, the next day this is bad, and, 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 and this TV show is good, and now oh, that TV show is bad. Like, it's just always changing. Their standard is always changing. Can I just tell you something? Jesus never changes. Jesus never casts a shifting shadow. He's there for all eternity. He is the standard that God calls us to live by. I'd love everyone to stand this morning. And as we close, I, I feel like God wants to minister to a, a couple groups of people. So I'd just love if you would just bow your heads, close your eyes, turn your heart to the Lord, and personally just ask him, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? Like right now, just ask him, what are you speaking to me through this message? I want this to be an encouraging message. I want you to walk out of here thinking, my goodness, I never knew all that about the Bible. 
Because here's why it's so important. Pastor Peter gave that amazing uh, communion teaching today about how we're forgiven, we're justified, we're righteous. None of that would even matter if the word of God wasn't true. It's there, they would be just words. And as you're asking God, just ask him, what are you trying to speak to me right now? I remember a time in my life, I was raised in the church. I was raised by godly parents. My dad was a pastor. And in high school, I started falling away from the faith because my brother started asking me questions. And he goes, Micah, what if the Bible's not true? My brain exploded. Like, man, if the Bible's not true, everything that we've ever been taught is a lie. Like my whole world would be shaken. But it put me on a journey. It put me on a journey farther than to know what my parents taught me or even some of my mentors taught me. Like, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I actually dug in and said like, what does this mean? Like how reliable is the Bible? And when I read it, all the, oh, and I actually studied it, I was just blown away. I had no idea and the world tries to hide it. The world tries to cover it up, but there's no other book like the Bible. There's no other religion like Christianity. There's no other relationship like we can have with Jesus Christ himself. And I believe he wants to speak to a few of us. I believe there's some people in here that have struggled with recognizing uh, the word of God as the absolute truth of your life. You, you, it's some of it, every time you read it, you're like, man, that is hard to understand. I don't even get what they're talking about here. And so you just shelve it and you go, okay, I'm gonna make the best decision I can make. God wants to bring freedom in your life today by giving you a standard where you can just feel confident. I know that I know that I know this is truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth and all that he said is truth. This is what 1 John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Before time as we know it even started, the word was. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is our hope and Jesus is our future. But we have to surrender to him. We have to recognize our sinfulness and know, man, as much as the Bible tells us I'm sinful, also know that the Bible tells us we have been forgiven. Is there anyone in here today who feels like they have been running from the truth? You've been running from truth himself. You've been running from Jesus because you feel like, man, my, my past sins are just too great. I mean, you're thinking about the sin right now, literally you're thinking about it and you're like, man, there's no way Jesus would forgive me. There's no way I could actually make it into heaven somehow because I, I, I've, I've messed up too big. But the beauty is the word of God stands true forever and he says, your sins have been forgiven. If you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. In fact, he goes, I don't even remember your sins anymore. That's the truth. But you have to believe it. You have to accept it. You have to receive it. You've wanted, you've wanted to surrender your life to Jesus, but the commitment's been hard, surrendering hard, the sacrifice is hard. But Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. That's the standard of what a Christian should, how they should live. 
So if there's anyone in here today, I want to encourage you, do not waste this opportunity. Know that God loves you, he's here for you, and he's ready to wash every single mistake, every single sin, every time you've missed the mark, he's ready to forgive. All you have to do is cry out to him. And if you're ready to cry out to him, would you just raise your hand right now and say, I am ready. I'm ready. I believe in the word of God. I know that it's true. And I'm ready to surrender my life to the only person who could ever truly save it because it's the truth. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for every hand in this room. If you're watching online, this is a time for you to do not miss this. Whatever you have to do, if you have to just pause, pull over, whatever the case, this is your time to do business with the Lord as we do business here. Know God loves you. Know that he cherishes you and know that as you make this commitment, your sins are forgiven. You can lower your hands and I just wanna pray this prayer together. We do this for a couple of reasons. The main reason is for everyone who raised their hand in this place today, whether it was in person or watching online, we wanna pray because we wanna show that we love them. We wanna show that we're gonna come right alongside of them, but it's also good for us because we remember that, man, we'll never graduate from grace. We need Jesus in our life. We need him right now as much as that first time I remember as a junior in high school giving my life back to Jesus. So wherever you're at right now, would you just pray these words? It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of sacrifice. And it's a prayer of commitment to Jesus, the truth. Repeat after me. Say, Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I could never pay. To make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. I give you my life and I give you my trust. And because of the blood of Jesus, I will never be the same. Come on, let's, give, let's praise God this morning for the people who came home to Jesus. Worship team, would you lead us? Thank you guys. I want this to be an encouragement to you. God is doing something in your life. Allow him to do it. Believe in faith that Jesus really is Lord and he has a plan and purpose and destiny for your life. And the truth of God will remain true in your life today.